Korea at the moment is a country that's going through a whole mass and raft of changes. It is literally being rebuilt from the ground up. And part of that is to do with Western materialism that has piled into Korea. But part of it as well is to do with the fact that there's just been an explosion of gospel Christianity in Korea. But what I'm guessing you don't know is how well over a hundred years the good news about the Lord Jesus first came to Korea. Korea at the time was a very anti-outsider kind of country, very tribal, very proud, wanted to keep outside influences away. So much so that if people travelled up the rivers to try and get in, the soldiers and the guards and the watchmen would be on the banks and anybody who came their way would be killed. It was that hard to get into Korea. Adventurers sometimes said they would try to get through, but to do so was to risk life and limb. In fact, there was one missionary who one day tried to get up on board a ship. It was called the General Sherman. He himself uh, was a Welsh fellow. His name was Robert J. Thomas. He was a Welsh missionary to China, so he didn't speak Korean. Um, but he'd somehow heard that some of the, I think it was Chinese Mandarin at the time, was being spoken by some of the Koreans. So he tried to smuggle himself in on the General Sherman, uh, um, um, going up the Taitong River. Uh, now we smuggled on board with him a big suitcase packed full of stuff. It was hard just to get on board because, you know, these were basically river pirates who would be taking them up the river. So the boat went up to the river and the reception they got from the Koreans was as anticipated, pretty hostile. They lined the river and they started to shoot. Now the General Sherman boat was okay. It managed to weather that fire, headed up the river, but then when they got up to the river they found that the water level had dropped and they had no choice but to turn round. They turn around, going back, if you like, running the same gauntlet, and at that point, the river had lowered so much that they got stuck in the rapids. Now, the Koreans, who had been on watch there, were on watch again, and they started to shoot, and they started to chuck stuff, and after a while, they lit bonfires, floated out, and they basically set the boat on fire. So the crew weren't quite sure what to do. They tried to fight their way to shore. So they picked anything that they could choose as a weapon and they tried to get out of the river. But when they arrived on the bank, it was a bloody mess, literally. Many of them were clubbed to death. Some of them were stabbed. Some of them were shot. But one of the people who was on board the boat didn't fight back. In fact, his behaviour was quite unusual. As he came ashore, he came floating ahead of him a big suitcase out of which he was carrying a stack of books. And rather than hurling abuse or sticks or rocks at those people who were shooting at him and trying to club him, he was hurling those books into the arms of the people who were trying to kill him. He was putting them into the hands of those who were trying to club him to death. And with every last ounce of his strength, he delivered these books straight into the arms of those who eventually killed him. And of course, those books were Bibles. Now, about 30 years later, history records that Korea became a much more open place. And there was a preacher by the name of Sam Moffat who went to that part of Korea and began doing gospel work, telling the message of Jesus. And he opened the little Bible class. And one of the first men who came into the little Bible class actually came carrying a Bible. But it was a blood-stained Bible. And he told the story of how his dad had found on a bloody riverbank a little book which he later found to be a Bible nearly 30 years beforehand. Now this is my question. What would possess a man to give all he has in order to get a book into the hands of somebody else? What encounter has he had that would allow him to be so free 
that he can give his life away for the good of another. Where does he get the fearlessness from? Because to be honest with you, I need something of that fearlessness because I face all manner of difficulties and I live quite a boring life. There are all kinds of threats on my horizon. There are all kinds of worries. Where where could I get the power to have that level of uh, fearlessness in the face of really scary situations? Where, Where could I get the power? What kind of encounter do I have to have so that I would have the level of forgiveness that would empower me to act with love and kindness towards people who have come against me and in one way or another, are almost trying to kill me, say, you're not going to get away. What kind of encounter do I have to have to have that? What kind, of, what kind of encounter do I have to have where I'm so full of life that I've got it so much to spare that I can just give it away? I can give my life away if necessary. Where can I get the power, have such a focus that I'm prepared to say, this is the thing that I was built for and made for and have got to do and push forward with? And that's where we turn, why we turn to where we turn in the Bible. Because this first chapter, and I know the girls read it really well, but it was hard to stick with it, wasn't it? Because it was so long. But this is a chapter of encounters. Encounters that change people's lives, so much so that it stops being all about them, and suddenly they're trying to push out with news, 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 of somebody else, and it's going out. It's going out through them, and they do it fearlessly, and they do it with forgiveness, and they do it with a fullness, and they do it with a focus that this world so often knows nothing about. And I realise that today there's a good chance I'm talking to some people who are very familiar with Christian things, but at the same time, it's very easy to forget, forget the encounter that you have that empowers that kind of living. And for some of you here today, I realise this may be your first brush with Christian things, but you've heard what I've just said, a fearlessness, a forgiveness, a fullness and a focus. And if there's that available, I know I need that in my life too. Then the place to go is just here. So please, have your Bible open. We're going to look at what's going on here and find out how we can have that kind of encounter that dares to leave something of that kind of legacy. So there we are, we're back in, down in the little verse number 19. Let's look at fearlessness. And we meet a character who had no dress sense whatsoever. Now this was John's testimony. This is not John the guy who wrote the book. This is John the baptizer. He wasn't a Baptist. I know we're a Baptist church. We call him John the Baptist for something. He was a baptizer. In other words, people came to him and said, I know that I'm not living the way that God would want me to, and I don't want that to be written over my life anymore. And they go, okay then, show it publicly by declaration that you're standing for God. There you go. Dum, boom. A picture of cleansing and being made new. But even John the baptizer knew that he couldn't transform people inwardly. All he could do was get them wet. So John the baptizer was looking in hope to somebody who would come, who would make people new, not on the outside, but on the inside. And we read there in verse 19, now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, excuse me, who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. Why does John the author put that in there? Because to stand up and do this in public, you required a little bit of fearlessness. You needed boldness, you needed guts. Because along had come the authorities, the thought police, and saying, who are you? Who are you doing this? Where's your authority to go and do this? And there he is with his shabby clothes that we read about in another part of the Bible. And he's doing it anyway. Where does he get the fearlessness to keep on going like this? 
going like this and pointing people away from himself to someone else. In fact, you can see that there here. I mean, it'd be a very funny question. You can see it in verse 20. He did not fail to confess, but confess freely, I'm not the Christ. So imagine you come up to me and say, who are you? And my first answer is, I'm not Evelyn. People would look at me and think I'm a bit nuts. Who are you? I'm not Suey. I'm not Jane. A bit weird that, isn't it? What's happened to him that means that he doesn't want to be sent to stage? In fact, it goes on. It would have been a, such a frustrating conversation. They, the authorities come to this guy, John the Baptist, and say, Who are you? I'm not the Christ. Are you the, the Elijah figure, the great prophet who was expected to come? No. Are you the prophet, the one who can fix all our problems? Are you the one we need to be looking No. Do you know that? When he's asked, Who are you? He's, I'm not, I'm not, no. Now that's really refreshing in a world where politicians are always picking themselves up and have got their media... Uh, media men to sort of pick them up a little bit. He's going, no, not me, not me, not me. Then what's the point, John? Why are you standing up fearlessly and it's not about you, you're pointing in a direction, what is it all about? Verse 23, John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I'm the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord. Do you get what that means? He's saying that God is coming. Make way. Make way. Do you remember how they made way at the royal wedding because royalty was coming? Barriers up, roads tidy, clean, inspected, ready because royalty is coming? Well, forget royal weddings. The king, the king of kings is coming. The Lord is coming. And that's why I'm not pointing to me. If it was just some bloke, if it was like Steve, or if it was like one of us in this room, He'd every right to stick it out his chest because he was a pretty bold man. He was pretty fearless. But he says, I am nothing. I am nothing. And we see it there. It goes on in verse 27. I baptise with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals are not worthy to untie. Where does he get his fearlessness from? It comes from the fact his hope isn't in him, it's in somebody else who is worthy. Now, you're sitting there and there's a danger this could fly by you, so I need to embed this one into you a little bit, just so you're absolutely clear. There are many places out there that tell you, here's a code, here's a set of instructions, here's a way to make life work for you. If you follow these ten steps to happiness, you'll get there. If you watch my TV program, if you buy this magazine, if you follow these tricks and uh, uh, tricks for the gym, if you do X, Y, and Z, follow this code, this philosophy, this teacher, this way of approach to life, then you will be fearless, then you'll be strong, then you'll have a name, then you'll be able to face everything. And many try, and for just a minute it works. But at the end of the day, when you follow a scheme, a plan, a code, a system of philosophy, who is the person who has to do the following? Who is the person who has to do the achieving? Who is the one who has to pass? It's you and me. Who is the rescuer? Who is the saviour? It's you and me, and you and me, we're not good enough at that. In fact, if you and I try to be our own rescuers, if, we, if you and I try to build out the foundation of our life on us, does it belay fear? No. We've all lived long enough to know it just increases our fear and our paranoia, doesn't it? But here's John the Baptist and he says, my hope is not in following a code, a scheme, a dream, a philosophy. That's not what Christianity is about. Our hope is not in something we do, 
but in somebody who does it for us. My hope is in the one who is so great that I'm unworthy to come even near his smelly trainees. He's so big. He is able, and where I'm not able, he is. And he'd have mulled that over in his mind for so long, and I wonder whether you've done that. And if you think he's unworthy... See, when you're unworthy of something, it means you've got no rights to it. Yeah? Um, I mean, we live in, a, in an age, don't we, in a democracy, so we're all viewed as every man is... Nay, a man or woman is viewed as equal. We're all equal in the sight of the law. We've all got rights before the law. But we're told that there's a higher order of which we haven't got rights before, that we're not worthy of and we can't deserve. We can't go and bang on the gates of heaven and say, God, you owe me. Although many people do. You can't do that. And John had to think about this for a while and he moulded over and he realised that if there was ever any hope for him to be connected with the God who made him and loved him, it was going to have to be one that comes by grace, not by something he does and achieves. And so he's fearless. Why is he fearless? Because he knows he has been welcomed on the basis of God's grace. You know that when you taste grace, it will make you fearless. Nothing will scare you anymore because you know you've got God's hand of grace and mercy upon you. You'd almost stand there and say, come on world, do your worst. Chuck bullets at me if you have to. But I know that if the one who is above every name, if he is with me, then I can face absolutely everything. If he said, you're alright with me, if he has entered into a relationship of grace, I am secure, I'm as safe as houses, which means I can be gutsy, bold, fearless and not afraid. I don't any longer have to be at the whim of other people's opinions about me. And aren't we all in danger of that? Oh, yes. I don't anymore have to be at the whim or driven by, motivated or hiding from my thoughts about myself. Because we know how to crush ourselves, don't we? And crush ourselves would be fair because sometimes, well, we're not the people we wish we could be, should be or ought to be. And other people's accusations against us are sometimes right. And the Lord knows both of those, but John the Baptist, the baptizer, comes along and says, I'm right with him because of his grace. His are the only set of eyes in all the universe that matters. I'm all right with him, so I am safe and secure and untouchable. And in that moment, he became fearless. Can I ask you whether you've encountered Jesus like that? In such a way that you suddenly... You look out at all the things facing you and you breathe a sigh of relief because you know you're in relationship with him. And when that happens, you can tell it's happened because you become increasingly self-forgetful. So whereas before all you're doing is thinking into yourself and my problems and, and you get up in the morning and you're shaped by your problems, your worries, your fears for the day, suddenly you're like, shut up self, what am I worried about? I, think of my, I don't think less of myself, I think of myself less. Do you get that? He has become bigger. He's my horizon. And that's the ultimate problem for so many of us, isn't it? It's that we are too big in our own opinions, or too big on our own radars. And suddenly, here's John, he says, I am not, I am not, no. Look! Look who is, look who's worth looking at. Look where we can find hope. Look how we can be fearless when we come near to him. So can I tell, tell you today, to the degree that you behold and look at Jesus is the degree to which you'll be fearless. And I know some of you very well, and some of you have some very difficult circumstances to face of late. And I come and talk to you, and 
your head is battered, you're trying to make sense of what you're facing, how am I going to get through this? And what's big on the horizon? Your problems, or the people causing them, or your situations, or your own failures. And I come along, and I open a Bible, and what do you do to start off with? Don't you? Be honest. And I open the Bible, shut up, Steve, I need an answer. Let me show you Jesus. And suddenly, I show you the Lord Jesus, and all of your problems, they don't disappear into nothing, but they get put in the scale with which they're supposed to be. He becomes bigger, and all those problems are put in their place, and you become fearless, don't you? That's the first one. An encounter with Jesus makes you fearless because of who he is. He's the ultimate one. Second of all, an encounter with Jesus brings you forgiveness. Now we can see this the next day. I absolutely love this. So we've got to that bit. I baptized, verse 26, I baptized with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Again, what's he shouting? Look at Jesus. Just like the fella on the boat was chucking Bibles at them. Look at Jesus. But why? Well, it's interesting here that if John wanted to make a name for himself, he'd have shut up. Sorry, he'd have said, look at me. But he doesn't do that because John the baptizer knows something here. He knows that there's something he cannot do for people. Now, if we were around the time of John the baptizer, we'd have loved to have had him as his mate, uh, have him as our mate. But John realised there were things that he couldn't do for people. He couldn't bring them forgiveness, and he couldn't bring them spiritual hope. And those are the two things that you need more than anything else. You really do. That's not me being using rhetoric. That's me saying you need more than anything else is forgiveness and a spiritual awakening from the Lord Jesus. So look at verse 29 here. We can see it. The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look! That's in the original, in the oldie, oldie language. Behold, okay? Behold. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist shouts to them, Leave me. Go. Get away from me. Go, go, go to him. You need more than a prophet. You need more than a priest. You need more than a guru. And if they needed that, do we need any less? We have this idea that a prophet, a priest, a guru will fix us. They can't. We need more than that. Only Jesus can do for you this one thing. Only he is qualified to deal with your sin. Now, we don't like that word, do we? What do we? I don't know. Do you know what sin is? Sin is putting ourselves in the place of God. It's saying, I will be at the centre of my world, I will direct my affairs, and I will live this one short life with reference to me first, and everything else fits around the outside. And yet some people have been wise enough to spot that that wrecks lives. It really does. Kingsley Amos, he was a novelist, a poet, a critic, a teacher. Uh, he won the Booker Prize, which apparently is some award for being very good at what you do. But this is what he wrote. And he was looking in on Christianity because he wasn't a Christian himself. And I don't think he ever became one. But this is what he wrote. He said, I observe that Christianity is one great advantage in that it offers an explanation for sin. And I haven't got one. You can be forgiven of your sins, he says. That must be a wonderful thing. Did you spot that? 
you can be forgiven of your sins, that must be a wonderful thing. I need to stop for a minute and park out here because some of you are carrying around a burden that you don't let anybody else know about, do you? So often shapes the way you make choices. It so often defines the way you feel through a day. Some of you are weighed down with guilt, regret. You feel empty. You often feel like you're, even in church sometimes, playing a bit of a part, and you hate it. It shapes the whole of your self-image. And you're holding on to it or covering it up, almost trying to deal with the fact that we know we're not the people we could be, should be, or ought to be. And so what I'm going to do is say something very weird here. If that is you, be glad. Hold on, Steve, be glad. Be glad for this reason. Be glad that the Lord has written into you an early warning system that says you need a saviour and you're not big enough to do it. Some of us are trying to carry our own faults and failures. Some of us try to pay our way towards God. We have this idea, if I could just be good enough, or if I know I can't just be good enough, I'll just be sorry enough, and I'll screw myself up inside and get all twisted, then, then it'll be okay. And John the Baptist goes, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why do you think he can God sent his son to pay for our wrongs so that we could be made new. Because we can't carry the weight of our own sin. We cannot reconnect ourselves with the God who made us and loved us. We can't do it. We need a saviour who can come and do it. And John the Baptist said, get away from me, quick. Go to him. Because he is the one who can pay the price so you don't have to anymore. He is the one who has come to carry your guilt and deal with it once and for all so that you can live free, so that you can be remade by Jesus, made new, to be free and full of joy in relationship with the God who you know, uh, who you need to know and who loves you. And only he can free you. A new haircut won't do it. A new car won't quiet it for very long. A nice new kitchen, a new holiday, a new fella, a new start in life. All of those strategies we use to try and quieten the voices inside and to hush them down. And John the baptizer says, Jesus, that's what you were made for. Don't think too small of Jesus. Go there. He's the one who came to be the saviour of the whole world. And so let me ask you this question. And I ask it because a minister who was rather rotund and used to live in London used to ask this of people all the time. He would say, are you a Christian? And if he got this answer, he would follow it up. He said, countless people, he would actually say, are you a Christian? And they said, I'm trying. And when they said that, he knew immediately that they knew nothing about what it means to be a Christian. Is that something new for you today? A Christian isn't about trying to be something. A Christian is about relying on Jesus to be your saviour. To be the person you cannot be. To let his worthiness be substituted for your unworthiness. It's a status. It's a gift that gets given to us. It's all about him making us right with God. So are you a Christian and you're forgiven? Is that who you are now? Thirdly, I won't go on to the fourth one. In fact, I'll go on to the fourth one. We'll miss one out just because we're short of time. Let's look at the last one, which is where we get a new focus. And we're going to jump down a little bit in the text here to verses 40 and 42. 
Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you're Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which were then translated as Peter. The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee and finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Now if this happened in your life, I think you'd be a bit outraged. Because Jesus comes to two people. He comes first of all to Peter and he says, right, well sorry, your name is Simon. Uh, I'm going to rename you. Now we've had the joy of seeing Alison Weston naming little Amanda. And they get to do that because they're mum and dad, they're superior. And Jesus comes along to Peter, uh, sorry, Simon, and he says, right, I'm going to rename you. I have the authority to write a new name over your life. You're now going to be called Peter, which means rock. And whenever the Lord Jesus gives somebody a name in the Bible, it's not because they deserve it or have measured up to it. It's what he's going to do through them because of his grace and power. He says, I'm going to build something on your life. And it's something that's going to stand for an awful long time. And that's why today we still hear the name Peter. And then he goes to the, uh, the other Philip and he says, right, Philip, follow me. Which basically in those days wasn't sort of, I'd like you to have a little listen to what I'm about to say to you. It wasn't that. So it wasn't Philip, I've got a word of advice. It wasn't that. It was, Philip, build your life on everything I say. Who is this guy who says that? Do you realise that was, that's what Jesus demands of people? He says, I don't want you to like me. I want you to build your life upon me. I'm not interested in having fans or hangers on, and in fact, he knows full well that so often it's very easy to be somebody who's drawn a little bit towards Jesus, to like some of the words that Jesus says, and maybe even, you know, pray from time to time and and come there to Jesus because we want something from him. Perhaps we've got a life goal that we're pursuing, perhaps there's a miracle we're after, perhaps it's something we want dealing with. And we come by, not because we want Jesus and want to follow him, but because we want something from him. And oh so graciously and oh so gently, he looks at Peter and says, I'm going to write a new name over your life. He looks at Philip and he goes, follow me. And they stand there and they look at him. And they do. I think that's amazing. So let me be very clear. If you're somebody who says, I'm a Christian, I have heard this, had this encounter with Jesus, then make no mistake about it, everything will change. You don't make, maintain control anymore. Jesus won't have it. He says, I don't just want to do a little in your life, I want to make the whole thing over. I want to rebuild you from the start with new ambitions, new hopes, new plans, new dreams, and I'm going to give you the strength to focus and to see all of those things. And I think that's really hard. I think that's a really scary prospect that somebody would come and say, I've got such authority over your life that I can make that claim upon you. He says, come and receive me as Lord. In fact, verse 41 is interesting, isn't there? Look how they've spotted who he is. Verse 41 we find, uh, hold on, I'll find it there. The first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and say, we found the Messiah. This is who Jesus claims to be. Verse 49, we find that he's, he's the king. All this is by him and for him. This is the claim he makes. So he says to each one of us, you don't get to play God in this. I'm the Lord. And if he is the Lord, if he is the one who took the stars into space, if he is the one who holds you and me together at the subatomic particle level right now, 
He's not the kind of person who you sort of say, will you be my assistant in life? Will you be there um, when I want you to be? You don't say to God, listen, um, I want you to be at the t- there at the time I want. You know, when, when I'm not watching Corrie and when the footy's over, I might call on you, but would you, Lord of the universe, just sit there, come along, come, come when I call you, when I've got a problem or an issue I'm facing. You know, you don't, you don't treat this sovereign Lord of the universe like that. And here Jesus says, come and follow me. So have you put your life in his hands? Have you called on him and trusted him as Lord? It's very difficult to do that, isn't it? I find it difficult to do that, and so do many of you. Until you look at who it is who's asking you to do it. You see, we don't want to give away control of our life, because how do we know that person will come through? How do we know that person... We'll hold it up. And I I haven't got time to unpack with you what what he brings out with Nathaniel earlier. Enough to say, he is the one who has come from heaven to save us from our sins, to bring us uh, fearlessness, to bring us a forgiveness, to bring us a focus, to be the Lord of our life. He has come all this way to do this. He's come at his initiative, his his effort. Is he really going to let us down? No, actually, his hands are a much safer set of hands to have our life in than our very own. He calls you and me to build our life on him, put our focus on him, give him everything. And he says this, he says, you give me everything you are and I will give you everything I am. Don't, don't underestimate the value, the magnitude, the size of what that is. So as I finish, let me ask you this, have you spotted this encounter? But he came and he gave his life away, gave everything to suffer on a cross to give us access to the God we were made to know. Is he trustworthy enough for you? If he is, turn to him and trust him. You see, will knowing him make you fearless? Yeah. Will coming to him and following him bring you forgiveness? Yeah. Will coming to him reorientate the focus of your life so nothing is the same again? Yeah. Somebody once said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. And I've had the joyous privilege of opening this with you today and calling you to come and find rest in him. This last song that we're about to sing is all about that. It's called, There is a Reason of Jesus God's own Son, precious uh, Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. And in our singing of this, we get to, in some sense, echo our hope and praise that He will be for us what we need Him to be. Let's stand together and sing.